The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. We met the war at a crossroad. We were young. Europe had been aflame for more than three years, and we had come a goodly way to smell its smoke. Full of wonderings and wanderings, full of restlessness and spice, we heard the war scream and writhe and crash among the distant trees. The guns around us added to the din, and suddenly we didn't want to die. Elton Mackin, former Marine of 1st Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment, AEF 2nd Division, writing in his memoir, Suddenly We Didn't Want to Die, on his experiences heading to Baylow Wood, June 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 45, Baylow Wood, Among the Distant Trees. Okay, so I missed the centenary of the Battle of Baylow Wood by a couple of days as of this recording, but to modify the American saying, I may be a couple of days late, but I am not a dollar short. For those folks outside the U.S., we have a saying here for when someone is late or otherwise unprepared for something, you are a day late and a dollar short. So I blew the centenary dates. Yes, I did. But at least I have the episodes packed full of what is hopefully good information. Battle of Baylow Wood began with that first legendary assault on June 6th, 1918, but the wood wasn't cleared until some 20 days later on the 26th. In honor of the fight for Baylow Wood, this and the next episode are dedicated to the men and women of the United States Marine Corps, as well as to the men and women of the U.S. Army's 2nd Infantry Division. All right, so we are back. The last couple of months have been shockingly busy with the day job, but we're heading into summer now so I can bury my face in World War I histories again for a while. Life is good. We're going to start off with a couple of admin notes. The first one is a podcast recommendation. The podcast I recommend you listen to is The History of Vikings by Noah Tetzner. Noah is knocking it out of the park here. He is taking on the history of the Vikings from multiple angles. He's telling narrative history. He's connecting with accomplished academics. And he's spreading the knowledge that other podcasters, YouTube personalities, and Viking history enthusiasts have. It's an excellent show, and you guys should check it out. I'll post links on the Facebook page and Twitter. The second and last admin note is this. 
as of this recording, the BFWWP has 154 ratings on iTunes. Folks, thank you so much, as always. 154. That's so many more than last time. I greatly appreciate all of you who have taken the time to write a review. And if you haven't done so yet, no worries. If you have the standard iPhone podcast app, it's easier than ever to submit a simple starred review. If you have a few minutes available and want to write in a few words, well, that's just awesome too. Reviews on iTunes help the podcast move up those murky and misty iTunes charts that I actually know very little about and help the BFWWP become noticed more and more. So do your bit for the podcast if you haven't already. Write a review today. So at the beginning of 1918, Imperial Germany went on the attack on the Western Front with Russia having knocked itself out several months earlier, the German army had been able to transfer upwards of one million men from the Eastern Front over to France and Belgium. This was the Great War's main theater of battle, and this was where the outcome of the war would be decided. Germany wanted to be the country making that decision. France, Britain, and Belgium were exhausted after three years of nearly incomprehensible slaughter. The Russians were out, but a new problem was that the Americans were in. Within months, France and Flanders would be flooded with hundreds of thousands of young, fit, and motivated doughboys who were just chomping at the bit to get into the fight and make the Kaiser dance. So Germany had to move now. They did. On March 21st, 1918, the Germans launched a violent attack against the British 5th Army in Picardy. The goal was to split the British from the French. The British collapsed. Within days, German Sturmtruppen had overrun and recaptured nearly all of the ground given up in the previous year's retreat to the Hindenburg Line, as well as the ground so painfully won by the British during the 1916 Battle of the Somme. On April 9th, the Germans struck in the Ypres region, hammering again at the Allies. The goal here was to threaten the British Expeditionary Forces' embarkation ports and thus direct their attention away from the French. New artillery tactics decimated the defenders. Trench lines gave way, and the Germans smashed themselves forward against the enemy. Neither attack was enough to be decisive. Both had lost steam as Allied resistance gelled under the leadership of the newly appointed position of Commander of Allied Forces, held by the soon-to-be Marshal Ferdinand Foch. Under Foch's command, the British, Belgians, French, Italians, and Americans would now all be working under a common strategy. No longer would there be multiple armies in France, with each prosecuting the war in their own way. The Germans couldn't give up. They couldn't stop. They had to keep attacking. In a move designed to draw away critical French reserves from behind the British lines in Flanders, German General Erich Ludendorff 
created a new attack plan. Unternehmen Blucher. This one would hit the French 6th Army positioned at the Chemin des Dames, breaking through and then making threatening moves towards Paris. This, if all went according to plan, would make Foch pull those reserves away from Flanders. With the French army and its government on shaky legs, this might be one of the blows that would finally knock them down and out. Operation Blucher commenced on the 27th of May with a devastating bombardment near Soissons and Rheims that obliterated the French and British frontline positions. Over the next three days, the Germans pushed 40 miles south-southwest towards Paris. In those three days, some 50,000 Allied troops were captured, as well as some 800 artillery pieces. It was another disaster for the British and French, especially the latter. The Germans were now just some 35 miles from Paris itself. The French army was ground down, its morale not in the toilet, but further below in the sewer. The French government itself was preparing to beat a hasty exit from Paris, as thousands of citizens of the City of Light already were. French politicians looked for someone to blame, and the finger-pointing abounded as the guns thundered in the spring distance. Three men now did what the situation called for. The first was French President Georges Clemenceau, nicknamed the Tiger. Clemenceau continued his daily visits to the front lines to shore up the morale of his army, which helped bolster the exhausted Poilus to keep fighting. Behind the scenes, he was also working to sack those generals responsible for this latest mess, and heads began to figuratively roll. The second man was the commander of the French army, none other than our man, General Philippe Béton himself. There is a saying that you are only given what you can handle, but man de Péton now faced a real test of his strength. It was not about saving Verdun or nursing a wounded French army back to health after the mutinies. No, this situation called for Péton to be overly optimistic. And that was hard for him. Pétain strikes me as the type of guy who would find fault with a beautiful and cloudless day of summer sun. He now went against his own very pessimistic and fatalistic nature to put on a strong face for his soldiers, offering encouragement and the sense that things were going to get better soon. And he did it, and his tired poilus listened. The third man was American General John Blackjack Pershing, the commander of the still-forming American Expeditionary Force. Pershing had pissed off just about every one of the Allies with his steadfast refusal to parcel out American soldiers to Allied units, insisting instead that they fight as a national army. But the critical situation created by the Germans in their latest attack provided the chance for Pershing to really do something now, 
and he finally had enough trained men that could help. Pershing released the AEF 2nd and 3rd Divisions to Allied Command for use as they saw fit. With this order, Pershing unequivocally showed his allies that the United States was in it for real now. The United States 2nd and 3rd Divisions, weighing in each at about 27,000 men apiece, were immediately ordered to march towards the area of Chateau Thierry. The 2nd Division, its men wearing the Indian head patch on their uniforms, came under the French Army's 31st Corps command under General Jean de Gaulle. The 2ID, as the Army called it at least 20-some years ago, was an infantry division organized on French soil in late 1917. It has the distinction of being the only U.S. Army division to have ever been commanded by United States Marine Corps generals, one of whom was Jean Lejeune himself. The division itself was formed with the 3rd Brigade of Regular Army Troops and the 4th Marine Brigade full of Marines. By this time, the Marines and soldiers of the 2ID were virtually indistinguishable, save for the fact that Marines religiously transferred their globe and anchor buttons onto their Army-issue uniforms in order to differentiate themselves. The young doughboys and Marines marched towards the sound of the guns as columns of wretched French refugees headed away towards safety, with everything they had loaded in wagons, carts, or wheelbarrows. So it was that on the 1st of June, 1918, the 6th Marine Regiment and Army 9th Infantry Regiment settled into positions astride the road to Paris, centered on a village named Lucy-le-Bocage. The 2nd Infantry Division, nearly as big as a French Army Corps, held the line running Les Tiolets to Broche to Lucy-le-Bocage to Champillon. Look up Lucy Le Bocage. The Le is L and E, and Bocage is B O C A G E. Lucy Le Bocage on Google Maps, and you'll be able to see uh, how the line was formed. The American Marines and Doughboys established this line while French troops, a couple of miles up, delayed the German advance. Once the Americans were in place, the exhausted Poilus began to filter back through the American line. As they trudged past the fresh-faced Sammies, a French officer is reported to have urged Marine Captain Lloyd Williams that he and his men should also retreat with the French. Williams replied, Retreat? Hell! We just got here. The Germans were on the heels of the French, and on the 2nd of June... They filtered into a kidney bean-shaped patch of forest known locally as the Bois de Bello, after Bello village to the north. Over the next two days, men of the German 461st Infantry Regiment began setting up defensive positions within the tangled undergrowth and thick trees of the hunting preserve that was about to enter the realm of history and legend. These Germans were a part of the 237th Infantry Division. The Germans wasted no time in probing the Americans of the 2nd Division. 
and between the 2nd and the 4th of June, they subjected American positions to artillery fire and several strong infantry probes. The Marines and Doughboys had to suffer under the whine and scream of incoming shells, but they turned back the enemy's infantry with well-aimed and well-trained rifle fire. Colonel Frederick Wise of the 5th Marines later reported that on the 2nd, quote, the German attack was coming. A long way off, over those grain fields, I could see thin lines of infantry advancing. It wasn't the mass formation I had expected to see after what I had heard of German attacks. Those lines were well extended. At least six or seven paces of open space were between the men. There seemed to be four or five lines, about 25 yards apart. They wore the coal scuttle helmet. Their rifles, bayonets fixed, were at the ready. They advanced slowly and steadily. I couldn't distinguish any leaders. They came within close range. Not a shot had come from our lines. Not a man had tried any wild shooting at long range. Those ten months of drastic discipline and terrific training had done their work. From where I stood, I could see maybe 500 yards down the line in each direction. In their foxholes, the Marines lay motionless, watching over their rifle sights. Suddenly, when the German line was about 100 yards from us, we opened up. Up and down the line, I could see my men working their rifle bolts. I looked for the front line of Germans. There wasn't any. Their second line moved steadily forward. Their rifles were at their shoulders. They were shooting as they came. Suddenly, they too crumpled and vanished. That deadly rifle fire seemed to take the heart out of the Germans who were still on their feet. Suddenly, they broke ranks and ran. Back through the grain fields, they retreated raggedly and vanished in the distance. End quote. On the 3rd, while all this went on, the French 43rd Division d'Infanterie launched an attack designed to clear Belo Wood. The attack failed. The Germans were already established and ready to fight it out for the one-mile-square patch of woods. Meanwhile, the Germans rained shells on the 2nd Division positions, punishing the Marines and Doughboys with steel rain. We sought protection everywhere, said Private E.A. Wall of the 6th Marines falling flat on our faces as we heard shells come screeching down. That was our only protection. We just had to lie flat, wondering if the next was going to get us. On the 5th of June, then, French General de Gaulle ordered that the next day, the French 167th Division to the Americans' left launch a main attack to start recapturing lost ground. The Americans were to support on the right by having the 1st of the 5th Marines attack and seize Hill 142, northeast of Champignon Village. And further to the east, the 3-5 and 3-6 Marines were to attack and clear Bois de Belo. Hill 142 would be attacked at 0500 the next day, and Belo Wood would be cleared starting at 1700. The Marines of the 5th and 6th Regiments looked from their foxholes and scrapes at the dark woods across the nebulous and newly established no-man's land. There, among the distant trees, as Elton Mackin would later write, 
lay the enemy in wait for them. Tomorrow, they would rush into those woods and make war against that enemy. Okay, so we have the background set up and we'll leave it here for a short bit. Next episode, we'll be back with the battle for Baylor Wood. That episode will be out shortly after this one. All right, questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter at, at WW1podcast. You can also go through the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Don't forget that if you're interested in becoming a patron of the show, please head over to patreon.com slash Battles of the First World War podcast. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening, and it's so good to be back. Talk to you again soon. Take care.